So the Bible reading is Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 21 and going to verse 38. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maeth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim the son of Melea, the son of Mena, the son of Mattathar, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would guide us through your word this morning that your spirit would lead us into a greater understanding of who you are, of what you came to do, and of what it cost you to do what you did for us. Now we pray this morning would be an encouragement to us all as we seek to serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, no doubt um, you're all aware that we're living in strange and unusual times. Uh, there are currently 3.9 billion people around the world who are in some sort of 
restrictions as to their movements in public places, some sort of lockdown. As of Friday, uh, our restrictions have eased very slightly here in Australia and in New South Wales, but we certainly aren't out of the woods, are we? Here, our country, in the country, we're quite blessed to have a lot of space that those in the city don't have. And so we may not be feeling the effects of the lockdown quite as severely as those in more urban places. But with so many people around the world confined to their homes, a lot of the great wonders of God's creation are totally off limits. No one is able to go and visit them. And so to combat this problem, in this digital age that we live in, some really tech-savvy people have come up with a, an out-of-the-box kind of idea. They have given us the alternative of taking a virtual tour. We might not be able to go and see the Grand Canyon in America. We might not be able to see the Acropolis in Athens or the Andes in, the, in Peru. But you can go on a virtual tour of all of these places. You can explore these famous destinations from the comfort of your own couch. It's a great opportunity to be able to explore places that you may not otherwise get to to marvel at God's creation, see them from a perspective that many of us have never or may never see. But it isn't the same thing as actually being there, though, is it? It isn't the same as going and experiencing it for ourselves. It isn't the same as being guided up the Andes by a Sherpa and feeling the high altitude as the oxygen becomes thinner and thinner and we find it harder and harder to breathe. It isn't the same as standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and feeling the wind roar up the canyon, looking into that vast expanse of nothing and feeling the heat on your face. The virtual experiences of going to these places are a really great idea. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But even though we might be able to see these places from the comfort of our own couch, it isn't the same as actually going there. No one would take me seriously if I said, well, I've taken a virtual tour of the Grand Canyon and so I've been there, I know what it's like. I've been there, done that. Because even though I've taken that tour on the computer and it's given me a greater appreciation of just how big it is, what an amazing natural wonder that God has created. I haven't experienced all that it has to offer because I haven't been there for myself. I can't really understand exactly what it's like to stand there and look out into the Grand Canyon. I can't really say that I know because I haven't actually done it. It just isn't the same as experiencing these things for ourselves. There's an old saying that I'm sure you've all heard. The old saying goes, you shouldn't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. The idea is that we don't really know what others have gone through or are going through unless we are going through those things or experiencing those things for ourselves. And there's real truth in this saying. 
unless we have experienced the hardship and the struggles of others, how can we ever ex expect to understand what others are going through? We know that we serve a sovereign God. We know that our sovereign God knows all things, that nothing escapes his attention. He knows what it is that we are struggling with at the moment. He knows the temptations that are luring our hearts away from reading his word and from praying to him. He sees our deepest regrets. He knows all of those things. But he doesn't just know about those things as though he's seen them on some sort of virtual tour of our lives. Jesus experienced all of the trials, troubles and temptations that we face. And so he has actually been there for himself. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, that for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Our Saviour isn't just watching our lives from the comfort of his heavenly throne. He is invested in our salvation, so invested that he took on flesh so that he might not only save us from our sins, but that he might also experience all the struggles that we face as humans, so that he might, not, that he might be able to identify with us not only through the cross and resurrection, but also in our human experience. As we approach this morning's passage, John the baptizer is out in the wilderness and there's a large crowd around him. He is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message was so convicting that many in the crowd started to wonder that maybe John might be the Messiah. But John quickly dispelled their confusion. He said, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that brings us to the first two verses that we're looking at this morning. That brings us to verses 21 and 22, where Jesus is identifying with his people through baptism. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a, a physical sign of a spiritual change in their hearts as they turned away from sin to the law. A physical washing to symbolise a spiritual change that had taken place in their hearts. But here we have Jesus, the only sinless man who ever walked this earth, 
and he is being baptised by John in the Jordan alongside those who are having a baptism of repentance. Now, Luke omits uh, John's objection to baptising Jesus. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Now, Jesus wasn't baptised as a symbol of washing away his sins because he didn't actually have any sin to wash away. Jesus was baptised to fulfil all righteousness, or in other words, to obey all of God's commands. And this particular command was uh, commanded through God's prophet, John the baptizer, that all mankind repent and be baptized. God instructed all men, to all people, to repent and be baptized. If Jesus hadn't have been baptized, then there would, there would have been one of God's commands that he hadn't obeyed. But Jesus was also baptized for a different reason. He was baptized as well as obeying God's command, he was baptised so that he might identify with all those who have had their sins washed clean through repentance and faith. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was baptised to identify with our need to repent and believe so that he could rightly stand as our representative before God the Father. And as Jesus prayed, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of the dove. A voice from heaven declared, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is Jesus' commissioning service. He's been commissioned to begin his public ministry at this point. God the Father has declared that this is his son that he is well pleased with him, that he is sending him out to do his will. He's been authenticated as the one in whom the Father had sent, the one who would take away the sins of those who trust in him. That brings us to verses 28 to 38, where Jesus is identifying with us in our humanity. Now, I know everyone really enjoys a good genealogy. There's nothing quite like a long list of complicated names that are hard to say. But these verses are very important to the message of Luke's Gospel. In these verses, uh, we're given 76 different names, 38 of which aren't mentioned anywhere else in the rest of Scripture, which is great if you're like Julia, who just had to learn how to pronounce them. Interestingly, there are some big differences between Luke's genealogy of Jesus and the one that's found in Matthew's Gospel. And these differences help us understand the focus of what Luke is trying to draw our attention to. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so they were concerned about what 
Jesus' connection is with the covenant of Abraham. And so it traces its line from, uh, from uh, Abraham to Jesus. But here, Luke isn't writing to Jews. He's writing to mostly non-Jews who aren't so concerned about Abraham. Luke's main focus in giving this genealogy is to show that Jesus is both God and man. After all, um, just having a genealogy in the first place is very human. We don't have family trees for animals so often. Luke is reminding his audience that Jesus doesn't just know about our human experience from afar, that he's actually been here, that he's experienced what it is like to live as a man. He knows exactly what our human experience is like. Now, verse 23 says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. From the outset of this genealogy, uh, Luke is explaining that Jesus was adopted into Joseph's family line. Because, of course, Jesus wasn't a part of this family tree from a biological point of view. Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. Mary gave birth to Jesus, through, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit while she was still a virgin. Therefore, Jesus, the Son of God, was adopted into this family tree. And I tell you what, if you thought there were skeletons in the closet of your family tree, you need to check this lot out. Because you'll find some really sketchy characters here. We don't have time to go through them this morning, but you'll find idolaters, polygamists, murderers, liars and thieves. And as Luke works his way from Joseph all the way down to God himself, notice that Adam is called the son of God. Here we see the most striking contrast in the whole of this genealogy. Luke is making a contrast between Adam, who was the first man created by God, and so in that sense is a son of God, the one whose rebellion brought sin and death into God's good creation, and Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, the one who took all of that rebellion and sin on himself on the cross and destroyed the power of sin and death. Adam was a son of God, little less, but Jesus is the son of God. Not because Jesus was created by God, but because that is a part of his relationship in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What Luke is wanting us to see from this genealogy is that Jesus took on flesh and became man for us. He lived on this earth. He faced trials, troubles and temptations. All of the stuff that is normal for us to face. He was adopted into a not-so-perfect family. And he did all of this for us. 
As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. When Jesus was baptised, it wasn't because he had any guilt of his own. He was baptised for us so that he might fulfil the Lord's command and so that he might be able to identify with us as we identify with him through our baptism. When someone is baptised, they're acknowledging their sin and rebellion. They are turning away from their old ways and turning to Christ. They turn to the one who not only redeemed us for himself through his sinless life, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, but also the one who is able to identify with us in our human experience because he too suffered and was tempted. He faced trials. He experienced loved ones dying. He saw people in whom he loves turning away from faith in him. And Jesus experienced all of these sufferings without ever sinning so that we might be safe from the judgment that is to come, the judgment that we deserve for our sin and rebellion. And so what that means is that when we are worried, when our circumstances are too hard for us to cope with, when the circumstances of our lives are keeping us so busy that we aren't even able to work out which direction to go, when we fall for temptations that we thought we'd long since conquered, Jesus understands our struggles. Our Saviour knows what we are going through, not from some sort of virtual tour of our lives, but having actually experienced all of the temptations that are common to mankind. So writer of Hebrews puts it, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with us in our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, help us in our time of need. Have you been feeling isolated this week or maybe lonely? Have you been struggling with any kind of temptation? Are there things in your life that are causing you pain and heartache, circumstances outside of your control? Well, this morning we have been reminded that our Saviour understands, that he cares for our struggles, our sadness and our temptations. That he walked in our shoes through baptism. 
but he knows what it is like to walk this earth, to face all of the struggles that we face. None of these have escaped his attention. None of these are far from his experience. He has given us new life through his perfectly sinless life, through his death and through his resurrection. He's enabled us to be able to be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, just as he was adopted into an earthly family. We have been adopted into a spiritual, heavenly, eternal family through Christ Jesus. As he descended and gave us this and experienced all that it is to be a part of mankind, he has given us a glimpse through Christ Jesus of what it, what the amazing gift is to us of being a part of this heavenly spiritual family through Christ Jesus. We have been adopted into God's family. We are heirs of God's kingdom. We have a hope that is far greater than anything that we experience in this life, even though we don't always grasp how good our hope is. And all of this has been given to us because God took on flesh for us. He walked this earth for us so that he might destroy the power of sin and death for us that was brought into this world by the first Adam and destroyed by the greater Adam, Christ Jesus. Let's come before him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, when our hearts grasp the depths of your mercy, we are amazed that you would enter this broken, fallen world, that you would suffer, that you would experience all of the temptations and trials that we face willingly for us. Lord, we thank you that you are not a distant God, that you are not far off. We thank you that you are with us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. We thank you that you loved us so much, that you entered our world as a man, that you suffered, that you died, that you rose again, so that we might be reunited, reunited to you through faith. But we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus and we pray that the joy of our salvation would be renewed as we remember the wonderful gift that you have given us through your Son. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.